you for the singing. Good to see those of you that braved the weather. My uncle on the farm years ago, years ago used to call this liquid sunshine. The farmers need it and want it. So, all right, it's Holy Week, and we will be uh, celebrating on Good Friday this week, and then uh, Easter Sunday, and uh, focusing on that uh, complex of events that form the very center of our faith. Uh, so, I invite you to uh, spend this week anticipating, reflecting. Uh, it be a great time to read over the gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus and prepare your heart for uh, all that we remember at this time. Today we are continuing in our series on transformation, uh, learning to live in the kingdom of God, and we're really trying to stress that that is, it is learning, right? It's not something that happens instantaneously, it is a process uh, as all education is a process. Last week, we began to think about the role of truth in transformation, and uh, it led me this week to, uh, to formulate a thesis to capture what we said last week, where we looked at, at Scripture as the human words about the divine word, the, uh, the incarnate word, the witness to Jesus as the one who embodies God's truth. So here's what we want to say. Transformation takes place as I commit to embodying truth in my daily life. And, and the emphasis on embodying there is significant, I think. Remember one of our key sections of scripture for this whole series, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All right, so... We've talked for a while about this transformation and how it involves the whole person. Uh, and, and what that means then is that if I'm really learning in the school of the Messiah, the truth that I'm trying to apprehend is something that actually works out in my body. And so verse 1 goes directly together with verse 2, doesn't it? I, I, offer, you know, I beseech you to offer your bodies, which is what Jesus, of course, does on this week that we commemorate. He very literally offers his body. The truth of God is proclaimed bodily in him. That's, that's central to our Christian faith. And it's central to this idea of transformation. So we get away from the idea that this is just a mental thing that's taking place, right? Or that it's just 
information that we're adding to ourselves. Information alone does not transform you. It's information, truth, we can say that better, right? It's truth, it's God's truth that becomes embodied. Now, don't want that to be too abstract, but there's many applications of this. Think about what we mentioned last week, uh, the, the theme in the book of James about speech, language, right? The tongue is a world of evil set on fire by hell itself. Now, speech, language, is obviously a good thing because God created our ability to do that and it reflects, it's our imaging of God that God himself is the one who's presented in the Bible as the one who speaks. And he does good things by his speech. He creates the worlds. He maintains the worlds. He reveals himself to us all through speaking. So it's good. But we made in the image of God to use our speech in good ways. Sin comes into the world and corrupts our speech. And so if we're going to be transformed in the school of the Messiah, it means that our bodily habits of speech need to be transformed. You, you don't just say, well, I'm, I'm going to study James and I'm going to memorize those verses. Well, good. Good thing to do. But is your body being transformed? See, we, we have different sin patterns in our lives. Some of you have a major problem with gossip. It's destructive. Not just to you, but to other people. And it is a habit that is in your body. So that you get into conversations with certain people who probably have the same sin, and before you even have to think about it, it's like driving home. You get in your car and you drive home and you hardly have to think about it, right? Because the skills of driving are in your body. There's habits in your body. You don't have to think, okay, uh, put on the turn signal, which way, which way indicates left. You don't have to do that anymore. You've learned it. It's in your body. And if you have a problem with speech, with gossip, in tearing other people down, and some of you do, you're not going to be transformed until you seek from God the movement of that truth about who you need to be until that gets incarnated actually becomes a habit in your body that affects your speech so that when you're together with other people and the, the conversation tends to go south and you, and you start destroying other people or their reputation, all of a sudden something clicks in your mind and say, oh, that's the wrong direction. I'm in the process of forming a new habit with my speech. And until that's in your body so that you learn to speak automatically, right? Then transformation hasn't taken place. 
And you can take that in the areas of sexuality. I, I mean, it, it goes right across the board. But it's, it's bodies that are transformed, friends. Your heart, your mind, yes, but it's bodies. All right, so I want to think more about this idea of people of truth. I used that phrase last week, but I want to spend some more time on this because uh, it's so critical. We're going to look a little bit at uh, 1 Timothy in a couple of minutes, but, but let's set the stage a little bit more. Let's realize that being people of truth in our world is perhaps more challenging than it has ever been before. Uh, for one particular reason, and that is that we live in what is sometimes called a post-truth world. Post-truth means after truth, right? It was, uh, I didn't realize this until uh, just a week or so ago, that in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary selected post-truth as the international word of the year. Why 2016? Well, I'm not sure. I have a couple ideas. Uh, what is meant by this term, after all? Well, here's how uh, the dictionary defines it. Post-truth, it says, is an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Facts don't count for what they used to count for. As evidence, as reason. When I uh, was at Trinity Seminary in Chicago from uh, 1980 to 86, I had a colleague there John Feinberg, who was, uh, had a degree in philosophy and, and thought more philosophically than I did. But he used to ask his students, this was in the 80s, right? He used to ask his students whether they understood the difference between giving a reason and expressing an opinion. Because he was observing that many students were losing that distinction. And that's what happens in a post-truth world. Facts, reasons, don't count for what they used to. All right, you can see all kinds of examples, right? So what is the last 15 years or so, we've had this uh, anti-vax movement in our country. Uh, what is that? Well, in part, it's a movement against scientific evidence in favor of personal experience and opinion. That's a post-truth world, friends. Post-truth is, is linked to another term, Postmodern, which you may have heard as well. That's become a pretty common term, uh, what, the last 20, 25 years? It's a bit older than that, but, but it hit the mainstream about the beginning of <coughs> this century. What is post 
modern or post-modernity. <clears throat> well, the simplest statement of it that I think I've ever heard, and you know I like simple statements because I'm a simple kind of guy, uh, I like this. In post-modernity, every point of view is only a view from a point. As you see classically in the argument between these two guys. That's a six! Clearly, it's a six! No, it's a nine! And they have a great debate over that. And it's a perspectival debate, isn't it? So, post-modern over against modern which is what I grew up in, right? Modern tended to say, just give me the facts. Scientific worldview was kind of the overarching theme, right? Just get to the facts. Even uh, Joe Friday on Dragnet, right? Just the facts, man, just the facts. Just give me the facts. Well, the postmodern scholars came along and said, you know, it's not as simple as that because one person's facts aren't necessarily another person's facts because we all have different perspectives. Every point of view is only a view from a point. Nobody has a bird's eye view of what reality is. Or, say it this way, nobody has a God's eye view of reality. So how do you evaluate the police? Well, if you're an African American, you very likely evaluate the police and its functions in a community differently from a white middle-class person. And you do so because you have a different perspective and a different history that you bring to that, and so you see different things. And you interpret things differently. So we get that, right? And in, and, and here's the problem then. In a secular world where God has died, the problem is that nobody has a God's eye view, even God. And the result is we're left in this morass, if you will, of simply my opinion, my interpretation against your opinion and your interpretation. There's, no, there's nothing beyond that we can appeal to. That's the postmodern dilemma. In this world, facts are only opinions. Very interesting uh, quote here from George Orwell. Uh, he was the English uh, author of uh, Animal Farm and the futuristic novel 1984. He died in 1950. So he's first half of the 20th century. <laughs> this is from an essay in 1943, where he says the very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. Lies will pass into history. Now he, he had that insight in part because of the his experience in the, the Spanish Civil War in 1936. He was a participant. And what he saw was there were events, there were battles and so forth that he was a part of that when he read about it in the media, in the newspapers, 
The accounts bore no resemblance to what he had lived through. And that was 1936. He wrote this essay in 1943. What's that? That's the middle of the, of the Second World War, right? A time when Nazi propaganda had overtaken significant parts of the world. Uh, when, when the communist move in Russia had been going on for 25 years with all the the propaganda and the, the rewriting of history was taking place there. So Orwell's in an interesting position a little before the middle of the century to see something that, that really sounds prophetic at that point, doesn't it? When you look at it now, I mean, we're, we're 70 years past that. But he, he was seeing it already way back then. Or go back uh, even a little bit further to a person who was not only uh, incredibly insightful as to what was happening in the Western world, in Europe in particular, uh, he not only highlighted stuff, but he, he became a major influence on the movements we see today, today. and that's the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who said, all things are subject to interpretation. Now, this is before 1900. He died in 1900. All things are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not of truth. In other words, what he's saying is the most powerful people determine what facts we live by. And I put facts in quotation marks because we understand that facts are only perceptions, right? But who determines that is a function of who has the power. Now think about that in terms of our world. That's, that's, a, that's 125 years ago. He saw that coming. And folks, we are right in the middle of it today. Whoever has the power in a world where people have nothing but their own opinions, where you express your opinion and somebody says what? That's just your interpretation. Meaning, that's your opinion. There's nothing to appeal to outside, right? Every point of view is only a view from a point. Well then, how do we live our lives? How does, to be case in point, how does America live? The answer, find out who has the power. That's what Nietzsche said. I wonder, think about this. Think about the move that there is in our country now to, to mobilize various kinds of lobbies and organizations to get political power. I mean, among Christians, in the last uh, 50 years, 40 years, there's been a great increase in Christian concern to mobilize the vote, right? Why is that? 
Isn't it in part because as Christians we feel the same thing? We see the same thing going on. That who decides the facts we're going to live by is a function of political power. And so we've got all kinds of Christian lobbying groups and we fought, I mean, we fought a big battle, didn't we, to see who was going to win this last presidential election because as the politics go, so goes the nation. That's what we're thinking. Now let me just suggest that that's a very secular way of thinking. There is, at least there can be, and I think there actually is, there's a real level of idolatry in that. Because, because it seems to me that in Scripture, Christians are committed to the idea that the power that really shapes the reality we live in is not political power, but spiritual power. And the church should be rooted in the spiritual power of God's truth embodied in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we've lost that largely in our churches, and so we, we do the secular move. Get out the votes. Because whoever has the power is going to determine the facts we live by. Well, I, I know that's kind of a, a, a deep dive for a Sunday morning. But the fact is, folks, we're living right in the middle of this. And, and so we need to be somewhat aware anyway. And here's the, the frightening part. Our children are bearing the brunt of this. And, and it's disastrous. All right, so we're in a post-truth world, but we're people, we're to be people of truth, committed to the idea of truth. And so let's look at another text here. Paul's letter to Timothy. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So last week we thought about scripture as the words about the word, God's truth, revealed fully in Christ. Now we think about the church and the role that it plays in truth and knowing truth. And Paul says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So we need to uh, think about this. We need to think that as Christians, we are called beyond this idea that truth or facts, whatever you want to say, are merely a matter of your interpretation. In other words, truth is not just something that is out there, but truth is also something, or not just in here, that is in me, but it's, it's out there as well. Or to say it this way, truth is not just subjective, it's objective. Subjective means 
relating to me, the subject. But subjectivism is, is the rule of the day in regard to these things, right? So we, we hear slogans. Look within yourself and find your truth. All right. But suppose, suppose you look within yourself and what you find is a lie. How do you know the difference? Speak your truth. Life is short. Dare to live your truth. Notice the emphasis that truth is privatized, isn't it? It's your truth. You decide what it is. And in the postmodern world, where every point of view is only a view from a point, well then your point about your truth is obviously what you should stick with. Who else can have a valid perspective on your truth? Even if they're wise, even if they're learned, even if they're your parents. Shucks, your truth is your truth. But, but suppose then that my subjective experience is not the ultimate measure of truth. Suppose that there is something outside of me that is the arbiter of truth. Suppose there, suppose there is a bird's eye view of truth that is over all of us, or as Christians we say, suppose there really is a God's eye view of truth. If that's the case, where do we find that? Well, we started that last week. I mean, in some ways, we, we could have done some of this last week to lead up to it. We say truth, ultimately, outside of ourselves, outside of our perception, truth is found in the Word of God, the speaking of God, which is finds its fullest Exposure in the Word made flesh. The Lagos who has come into our world and who has spoken to us not only from God but spoken to us as God in revealing what it means, what the world is like, who God is, and even who we are. He has spoken into that. So we, we talked about that, but, but what I want to take us to now is that truth is broader than just the scriptures, right? And of course, if we just say the truth is only the scripture, we still have a problem. And it's, it's part of what is right about the postmodern take. And that is that you and I only have a view from a point, right? So we come even to scripture and we say, okay, what does that mean? And... Dick and I end up in an argument because he thinks it means one thing and I think it means another. Of course, Dick and I would never have an argument, but, but you can see the point, right? 
The point is that we're still doing this interpretation thing and, and we could say, well, you know, you're really no farther along than the rest of the world because you say God has spoken, but now you're not sure what he spoke. Maybe it is all just interpretation. I don't think it is, but, you know, you could make that point. So we talked about scripture being significant and important. What about other ways of accessing truth, other sources of truth? And uh, I've been helped by reading a, a little recent book by Brett McCracken called uh, the, the Wisdom Pyramid. And, uh, and so I want to talk about, I want to use that actually as a model for this week and a week or two after that. Next, next week will be Easter, but you know, beyond that. So the Wisdom Pyramid that McCracken talks about is based on a, a different pyramid that a lot of you probably saw growing up. I, I think I remember it from grade school. And it's the food pyramid. Remember the old food pyramid? You have level one, which is the base of the pyramid, and it's the widest area. And it's uh, level one is bread. This is to, to have a balanced diet, right? So it's bread, cereal grains, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then somewhat narrower, a smaller amount, but the next significant one is level two, which is vegetables and fruits. And then above that is level three, milk, uh, fish, uh, eggs, and so forth. And then at the top level, the smallest level, is uh, all the good stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I, got one of these, I got one of these pictures that came up at, that I was, uh, I really wanted to use at the very top, the very point of the pyramid. You know what was there? A donut. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that did my heart good. Uh, except I thought it was a bit disparaging toward donuts. If I were to do this, I would turn it on its head and I'd have the donuts in the first level and everything built on top of that. Well, you get the idea then that there are various sources of a healthy nutritional intake. So it's using this kind of analogy then that uh, Brett McCracken talks about a wisdom pyramid. At the base of the pyramid, the, the, the widest, fullest extent that everything else builds on is the Bible. It's, it's the word, right? It's the words about the word. I don't think there's any need to argue about that. On top of that, the next level is the church, which, and he has both the local church and the broader historical church. He includes tradition there, which is significant. That's the church through history. And then above that is nature and beauty. Above that is books. Above that is the internet. So we need to think about this. It is interesting, you know, <clears throat> that if donuts end up at the top of the food pyramid, it's interesting to think about the internet at the top of the information pyramid. I think just, I think just as much as I would like to have donuts at the base level, I think there are many Christians who have the internet at the base level. 
That's what they're building off of for their perceptions of truth. And it's a disaster, friends. You know what my health would be if I lived according to a donut diet? And do you know what's happening to the souls of many believers because the internet is at the bottom of their pyramid? It's a disaster. Well, I'll probably have more to say about that later. You can imagine what it might be. Today, though, we're focusing on the church, which Paul says, interesting statement, the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Timothy was ministering in the city of Ephesus, right, when Paul wrote him this letter. So he's talking about the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I don't know if, if this is part of the metaphorical background that he's, he's, he's actually in part talking about the, the church as a building. That's not the only metaphor here, but it's one of the metaphors, the church as a building, because he talks about the pillar and ground. So what's behind that? He, he doesn't really think the church is a building. Right? He thinks the church is the people. That's why he calls it the household of God. But but he uses the image of a building, and maybe he's reflecting on the fact that the city of Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the, uh, the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, that uh, the ruins still stand, and they're, they're pretty impressive ruins. Here's an artist's conception of what the actual temple in Paul's day would have looked like. Boy, the stately columns supporting that monstrous roof seen from probably all around the city. Paul says, I want... I want you to <clears throat> show people, Timothy, how they ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation <clears throat> of the truth. He doesn't say the church is the truth, does he? He says the church is the pillar and foundation. The church lifts up the truth in the world. The church is not the truth. And I suppose it's obvious then to say that you are not the truth. I am not the truth. The calling for us is to lift up the truth, which is something else again. It's the truth of God. It's the, it's the reality about the world we live in, made by God, the living God, Paul says. This is not a private understanding of truth. This is a corporate understanding. It's together that we do this, that we become the pillar and foundation of truth. And, and in the same text then, we've got to say, this is family truth Paul's talking about. Right? I want you to instruct people how to behave in the household of God. It may be translated house of God, which sounds like a building again, but, but it's the same word for households. 
which in the ancient world could be not just a nuclear family, but it could be extended relatives, even be servants gathered together, right, in a, in a common household. Now that's what, that's what the church is. So I, I'm calling it family truth. There's a whole discussion we could have about first family and second family, which we're not going to have. But it's interesting to think about. Remember what Jesus said to his brothers when they came to call him away? He said, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? What was the first family for Jesus? Well, you think about that. But church is family truth, family reality. <clears throat> Part of what that means is a family history. We are shaped by our family history. Uh, even relatives you don't know about. They've shaped you in ways you may not understand. Uh, I really don't. I met one of my great-grandfathers. I met him when I was a kid, but I knew virtually nothing about him, a few stories, but really, I'm not aware of the impact. But he's had an impact because he had an impact on my grandfather. My grandfather had a huge impact on him. So I'm sure my great-grandfather was part of that chain. I'm, I'm just not sure what it was. But see, in the church, in this family, we have a family history. And the history is part of the shaping that we receive and, and a significant part of the shaping of our understanding of truth. So we can go back in our, in our family genealogy and we can find some of these great people that have shaped our understanding of truth. Not just the apostles, of course, they're huge in the family. But what about St. Irenaeus in the second century? said some important things that are, are still powerful today if, if we knew more about them and understood how they speak to our age. Fourth, fifth century, St. Augustine. Wow, what a powerful conceptualizer of this notion of grace by which we are saved. St. Thomas Aquinas, medieval, who thought so comprehensively about the world and the impact of Christian faith. Luther and Calvin with their fresh interpretation of the nature of salvation and faith and grace. John Wesley. I mean, these, these are people in our history. And we read God's truth not just as isolated, my truth people. We read it as members of a family. We have this tradition that goes back. This is why Jack Mercig loves the study of church history and thinks that we should do more with that in church. And, you know, he's probably right because we don't know our family history. So God has not left us just with a Bible and said, well, you know, make the best sense of it you can. He's put us in a family of, of some very, very bright committed, godly people who have looked at God's truth through the years, and they've lived that truth. They have experienced God over the period of centuries. 
And that's our inheritance, friends. This is our family. This, this is the household of God that lifts up the truth in the world. Now, you can look at any one Christian. I mean, <clears throat> in the days of the Internet, this is one of the discouraging things, right? You can look at the Internet and almost any day find a fresh story of some Christian who has stumbled and fallen in ways that have hurt a lot of people. And to that, we just have to say, yeah, you're right, you got it. But on the other side, <clears throat> we need to remember the family history and to see that through the ages, this family has endured, not only with <clears throat> strange Uncle Freddy, I mean, you have that experience in your earthly family, right? Oh, boy, I wish he weren't in the family. But he is, and so you embrace strange Uncle Freddy because he's in the family. Okay, so we have this family, <clears throat> and we embrace it. And it helps us to understand the truth. We're not left on our own. In other words, we learn together. We understand the truth together. then we incarnate the truth. I want to finish there today. <clears throat> so this is where we started. Right? Truth needs to be incarnated. The truth about our tongue and the effects of sin on our speech patterns, that needs to be incorporated in our bodies. And when we say that, we need to recognize that, once again, God has given us the model of what that looks like. And, and on this Holy Week, we should be very aware of this. That the Word was made flesh, and He came and dwelt among us to reveal the truth about God. And he did that through the course of an earthly life until he was about 30 years old. And then he went to a cross where he was put through the most extraordinary suffering in his body. To incarnate to enflesh the ultimate truth about the world and about God himself. The crucified man at the center of history proclaims in his body that the world is evil God is good and loves the sinful world. And so understand, friends, that to the degree that we give up on worldly power and commit ourselves to spiritual power and to incarnating the truth, that will cost us something. And that's all through the New Testament. And it costs us something because it costs him something. 
And to live truth in an evil world calls for sacrifice. And friends, we need to get this. And we need to get it for the sake of our kids. Because in this world where opinion is all they face, it's a disaster. If you are, if you are sexually a boy, genetically a boy, and you choose to be a girl, the word is, that's the ultimate truth about you. Right? In a postmodern world, we disconnect gender from sexuality. Kids today are facing stuff that I never had to face. I'm trying to sort out whether I wanted to be a farmer or go off to college. That, that turned out to be a pretty simple choice. But when you are responsible to be the arbiter of truth for yourself, you're in a tough place, friends. God help you. God help the generations that are coming. Because they're going to need it. Let's pray. <clears throat> this morning, Lord, we're, we're so awed, so humbled, so grateful for the truth that is portrayed on that screen. The truth that Jesus lived out and embodied on the cross. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Not leaving us as isolated individuals. Lord, you've called us into your family. That we can know the truth and live the truth. Lord, give us courage to follow the one who lived out that truth even though it costs them everything. We begin to sense, Lord, just how important that is in our world. And Lord, bless parents who are trying to guide their kids. Bless our young people who are trying to keep their heads above water and to seek you and walk with you in this very dangerous time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Make you perfect in every good work.
to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen. Go in the peace of God. Amen.